0: Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're saying goodbye to a Detroit
0: rock legend, Wayne Kramer. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll revisit our interview with the songwriter, singer, and guitarist of the MC5. But first, we're reviewing new music from Brittany Howard. That is a little bit of what now, the title track from the new Britney Howard album. Much anticipated, long in the making. Her uh, first solo record came out in 2019 to great reviews, Jamie. This is her first album since then. So uh, much anticipation here. Uh, For those of you uh, who are sound opinions fans, uh, may remember that we had Britney Howard. At the very beginning of her career on the show with her band, Alabama Shakes, way back in uh, 2012. Show 333. Three, three. A lucky number. Yeah. Uh, well worth uh, listening to that. The performance is there. Alabama Shakes made some noise. Garage Rock meets Soul. Brittany, uh, the prime mover in that band, a multi-instrumentalist and singer and songwriter. And then uh, shocked a lot of people, including her bandmates, by saying, you know, she wanted to move on in 2018. She has clarified that you know it wasn't breaking up the band. She just needed a little hiatus. She had some music that she wanted to express outside the boundaries of the band. Jamie, uh, that uh, debut solo album in 2019, proved that she is was indeed uh, maybe a little hamstrung in Alabama Shakes and yeah. how she could express herself musically. Very diverse record. Uh, now five years later, she st- she built a home studio during the pandemic, uh-huh. and uh, her second album has finally arrived. Uh, here is a track from what now it's called Another Day from Brittany Howard on Sound Opinion.
2: Oh,
1: Is Brittany Howard with Another Day from her second solo album, What Now? Um, Greg, that voice mm. is just an amazing instrument. And I'll confess, I was a little surprised when Brittany stepped aside with Jamie. Uh, but it was a very personal album about the uh, death early on in her life of her sister. Um, you know, and, and it, I was going to miss Alabama Shakes. The, the uh, sympathy and empathy and and just tell telepathy right yeah. telepathy right yeah. that they had when they were in the studio with us it, it was visible it was audible um but wow uh britney has a broader vision uh, a lot of fans are comparing it to prince like you know there is funk there is uh, old school soul there is uh, you know house bangers Disco bangers, dance floor, rave ups, uh, and there's even some experimental ambient new-age jazz, dare I say, uh, on this record, and yet it holds together. It doesn't have the thematic power of these songs about the loss in her life of her sister Jamie, but it does have a lot of introspection. Um, You know, Britney is out as a lesbian woman, uh, came out a couple of years ago, had a relationship, it fell apart, she takes a lot of the responsibility, um, but she also is talking about community building. building uh something we were all yearning for in the midst of the pandemic and uh uh, looking outward in a more philosophical way about life in general while really touching our soul and and our booty on this right it's an amazing record i was gonna say it's a fun record it's not it's it's a emotional uh roller coaster and all of it's powerful
0: it is. I I was uh, blown away by this record. I thought, okay, Jamie was an amazing record. How is she going to top that? She may have just done that with this record. You're right. I I, I you know Jamie had that personal touch to it. Uh, it was a soul-bearing record, without a doubt. Lyrically, it was a very strong record in terms of expressing. Uh, how her life had evolved. She was somewhat circumspect in talking about those origins uh, when we had her on the show. I think she was yeah. still sort of feeling her way out in terms of how she wanted to present herself to the public. And she was very deferential to her bandmates. Truly. She, she did want them in the background. Yeah. So, so Jamie got a lot of that out, out in front uh, of the world. And... Uh, you know, on, on this record, some people have said, oh, she, she's been putting more emotional distance between herself and, and the lyrics. They're a little more oblique. I think, again, talking about a breakup um, in dire- relatively direct terms, I, I think, but, you know, more elliptical, and, and certainly, than Jamie was. Um, the thing about this, though, is her personality is being uh, projected through the music. Her Just her breadth of musical influences is staggering to me. It is. And her... Ease in each of those ideas. You know, she's she's not straining at all. Her voice is so flexible, so amazing. I mean, you go from like a ballad, like To Be Still.
2: I wonder how delicate is your touch with something you love so much.
0: To a dance floor banger, like Prove It To You. You know? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty wide range of sound. And the way her voice just totally at ease within these contexts. She's not straining at all. She's doing the vocals on all the tracks. She's playing piano, she's playing guitar, keyboards, bass, co producing. Mixing all well, the tracks. She's at, complete command of this you're record. You're leaving percussion off the list, right? because
1: apparently when she felt there needed to be a little extra groove, she'd reach for a water bottle or a tin can wow. and bang on. I was like, wow, that's like Aphex Twin territory. A
0: lot of stuff you'd find in the garage at her new home studio, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly the, the vibe here. She's an amazing artist. Uh, this is a great record.
1: Well, that's what we thought about the new album from Brittany Howard, What Now? As always, now we want to hear from you. Share your opinions on a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. An edited version of the most famous intro in all of rock <laughs> history, right, Greg? Right, yeah, absolutely. Kick out the jams, the signature song by the MC5 featuring uh, the twin guitar attack of Fred Sonic Smith, who we lost years ago, and now Wayne Kramer, dead at the age of 75, a co-founder of that incredibly influential detroit Mm. band uh recorded live that first album at the grandy ballroom in the fall of 68 um wayne kramer uh, a fascinating human being A a tremendous (laughs) musician, but what an interesting artist to talk to. He did a lot of living. You know, after the MC5 fell apart, uh, he fell into a dark hole that he was never hesitant to talk about, Mm -hmm. selling drugs, fencing stolen goods from homes that he burglarized winding up in jail learning from that experience uh and and giving back he was the founder along with billy bragg of jail guitar doors usa which uh, worked to bring music to people behind bars. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a noble, noble cause. He also had a great sense of humor. You know, asked about those uh, those days as a criminal. He said,
0: you know, as a gangster, I made a great guitar player. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, they put it all on the line, right? The MC5, they they, they soundtracked the anti-war movement. But, yes. you know, generally speaking, the hippies were fairly peaceful. Uh, they were anti-flower power also. Right. You know, they were kind of caught in the middle of you know they they were not on either side they were they were kind of saying we want a revolution and Wayne was like, we were nuts because they had way more guns than we did. Right? Uh, you know, the, the establishment. But that was formed in a crucible of fire.
1: I remember oh, absolutely. Detroit long, was
0: burning down. Man. Long <laughs> interviews with Wayne and
1: with John Sinclair, the manager of the MC5. They were standing on the roofs of buildings downtown Detroit, watching the city burn. Right. You know, in the riots in in uh, in '67. Um, you know, they didn't really have a plan for what would
0: come after the revolution, but uh, but they were calling well, for change. Their hearts were in the right place. In 68, they were the only band uh, of many that were invited to play the Democratic Convention uh, out in Lincoln Park uh, just on the year of the in convention. Yeah. Protest against the war. The MC5 show up, and, and Wayne said, you know, you you knew it was going to be bad as soon as we stopped playing. The music kept things kind of relatively calm, and then the, the police moved in yep. and started clubbing people as the show was breaking Destroying up. Destroying the 5's equipment. I have a great review of that show,
1: Greg. Mm-hmm. There was the sound of mountains crashing in <laughs> this holocaust of
0: the decibels. You know who wrote that? Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, yeah. You know, from the Miami and the Siege of Chicago, is 19. 1970. That was our book.
0: Bible, right? We read yeah. that book, and we go, "Wow, that was so cool!" I always take my kids out there. This is where it started. This we lived right. like yeah. a few blocks from Lincoln Park. Wayne you know? bled for yeah. your sins right. on this spot <laughs> in Lincoln Park. Now full of baby strollers. <laughs> Indeed, what a you know, and and just a really affable guy, you know, yeah. a, a controversial in some respects, you know. His role in in, in in squelching that MC5 movie, yeah. uh, it, you know, mm-hmm. great movie. But, you know, Wayne was uh, very adamant about certain things, and uh, he didn't make all, friends everywhere he went. Well, and I recall in this interview when I referred to uh, Rob Tyner,
1: the great MC5 vocalist, as being chubby, Wayne kind of chopped my head off and handed it to me.
0: <laughs> he was not He was chubby when I met him yeah. later in life. No, Wayne, Wayne, was Wayne was Detroit through and through. He said exactly what he felt. He didn't, he didn't uh, no. mince words, right? And we respected him greatly for that because that was true of his music as well. When we return, our interview from 2018 with Wayne Kramer on Sound Opinions.
1: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, Since 1988, Goose Island has been brewing award-winning beers in Chicago that are inspired by this city. Take 312 Lemonade Shandy, Tropical Beer Hug Double IPA, and a rotating series of hazy IPAs only available in Chicago. Uh, you know, every time we go down to
0: the Goose Island, there's another one that they're pushing on us. That's right. You and know, they're all good. Absolutely. And uh, what supporters of, of musical culture, you know, in, in the city of Chicago and elsewhere, uh, if you go to a show in Chicago and you see that Goose Island uh, sign, you know, you know you're in good hands. Uh, they're music fans as well as great uh, beer makers at Goose Island, so we're really proud to be associated with them. The Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's beer.
1: Sound Opinions is sponsored by Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success Skip the grocery store, prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton
0: of nutritious and flavorful options. Factor now offers additional options like breakfast, smoothies, juices, snacks, and more to keep you going no matter what's on the schedule. When things get hectic, Factor is flexible. Change your order up every week or pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. So if you want to try
1: Factor and make your life easier, here's what you need to do. Head to factormeals.com slash soundops50 and use code soundops50 to get 50% off.
0: That's code soundops50 at factormeals.com slash soundops50 to get 50% off.
1: And we are back. Our guest today is MC5 guitarist Wayne Kramer, prolific solo artist in the years since. He's here to talk about his new memoir, The Hard Stuff, Dope. Crime, the MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. I think first, Greg, we have to start with who was the MC5, the Motor City 5, a rock band out of Detroit, young musicians looking to make an incredible noise, building on the music of the 50s, taking it in new directions with touches of free jazz and what would come to be called punk rock. Arriving at a time, probably the most controversial year in American history up until Until recently, 1968, the wake of riots in major American cities, including Detroit, height of the Vietnam War, the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement, the Democratic National Convention here in Chicago, the MC5 never... Hit it big commercially, as, as was expected by many people, until years later when generations of musicians have since taken inspiration from their work. Punk rock in the 70s, you know, the Ramones or the Progenitors in England, Sex Pistols Clash, groups in the alternative era like Mud Honey or Rage Against the Machine. There are dozens and dozens of artists who have taken inspiration from what they did, the MC5, in Detroit in the 60s.
0: So it's a 50-year anniversary, Jim, of that debut album uh, from the MC5. Kick Out the Jams was recorded 50 years ago this month. That album was, uh, you know, talk about a calling card, right? Uh, It was chaotic, very live. You got the sense of being Mm -hmm. at that Grandy Ballroom, watching this band at its peak. There was also a political veneer as well, that could not be discounted. The the, man, the band was associated with the White Panther movement. Their manager, John Sinclair, was a noted radical and self-described revolutionary. Uh-huh. He wrote the liner notes for, for Kick Out the Jams, and the MC5 happily went along. Much to their chagrin, though, uh, the establishment didn't like it so much. I mean, a big department store in Detroit, Hudson's, for example, mm-hmm. wouldn't carry it because of some of the outspokenness. I mean, the FBI investigated this band. I foia <laughs> the FBI file, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Wayne Kramer talks about his days in that Detroit scene, his struggle with drugs and alcohol addiction, his time in prison in his memoir. And he also talks about his career as a solo artist and music composer for film and TV. Now... Wayne is currently on tour celebrating 50 years of Kick Out the Jams, and we'd like to welcome him to Sound Opinions. Wayne, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, guys. Ha- happy to be with you. Always happy to speak to you, too.
1: Wayne, let's start at the beginning. The MC5 comes together around a cast of young ne'er do wells <laughs> in the Detroit area Fred Sonic Smith on guitar with you, Michael Davis on bass, you on guitar and vocals, Dennis Thompson on drums, and the great rob tyner as the lead vocalist part of what i loved about the mc5 is that you guys were not polished specifically rob tyner he had these glasses this weird wild afro he was kind of a chubbier guy he didn't fit the mold of a rock star god like robert plant
3: no but he was the world's greatest rock front man yes because he looked like nobody else he sounded like nobody else and he had a a vivid clear vision of the future of rock and, and where he wanted to go with it. I mean, he wore glasses and he had a gap in his teeth and he had this the big shoulders and this little tiny waist and skinny legs. And he wasn't like direct from central casting, that's for sure. Hmm. We worked hard to develop an, an idea about what our band was trying to do and and what our message was and it was a message of self-efficacy and self-determination and that you could change the world if you did it full measures you know if you kicked out the jams wholly and completely you could make something happen I know how you want it,
0: It's important to note, when a lot of bands in the late 60s were talking about sort of a radical revolution, a a sort of a sense of cultural upheaval was necessary in the midst of this Vietnam War, Spiro Agnew, the vice president of our country at that time, Commission on Terrorism and the the New Left, says the band is part of a communist conspiracy to corrupt the youth of America. (laughs) Wayne, you're a young guy. You're seeing all this stuff getting piled on your head. Uh, you're on you're a rock band that's, that's making some noise out of the Midwest, and suddenly you're on the radar of the vice president of the United States. What was the, what was the feeling within the band at that time?
3: felt like we were um, being fairly effective um, <laughs> in disturbing the power structure. They clearly used everything they had against us, and we ultimately went to court with the Justice Department over the issue of illegal wiretaps. They said that they could tap our phones because it was a matter of Mm. domestic security. And we held that we were a nation of laws and not of men and that you needed a warrant signed by a judge to tap one's phones. And the Supreme Court of the United States agreed with us. And the day before our court decision was released, the plumbers were caught taking the bugs out of Democratic headquarters in the Watergate. Mm-hmm. So, our White Panther wiretap case led to the downfall of Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. I basically inserted my Stratocaster where the sun didn't shine on Richard Nixon.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: To me, what's interesting, Wayne, is that you talk very openly in the book. You're kind of openly admitting, you know, hey, I just wanted to not do a regular job. I I didn't want to (laughs) work. I wanted to have sex. I wanted to play in a rock and roll band. And yet you become these sort of avatars of this radicalized, you know, left-wing revolution. How did that transition really occur? What was the catalyst for that that occurring?
3: Well, it it wasn't that I didn't want to work. I just didn't want to do certain kinds of work. Well, right. I want, you know, yeah. I, being a Detroiter, we hold hard labor in high esteem. There's nobility in working hard. So I wanted to work hard, but I wanted to work hard at something that I thought mattered, and I didn't think that uh, a, a job on the line at uh, Chrysler was going to amount to much. But the radicalization was that I was part of an entire generation that just could not stomach the hypocrisy and the corruption of American ideals. You know, at, at my core, I always saw myself as a patriot. You know, democracy is participatory. It's not just a word that we throw around. It's actually something that we do. And my understanding of the way our country functioned was if you didn't like the way the government was doing something, that you could protest it. And I protested with everything that I had. And I was part of an entire generation that protested um, the war in Vietnam, civil rights, outdated uh, 50s sexual morality, marijuana laws, and a host of other, uh, you know, the environment. <laughs> there there was a lot to protest against. And, and um, I was one of those people that spoke out.
0: You were right in the middle of that '68 Democratic National Convention you when things got do. ugly. You were the only—I guess there were a number of bands that were invited to play. You were the only band that actually did play at the convention as sort of a, a as a part of uh, this the student movement that was occurring in protest at what was going on at the convention downtown Chicago. You set up in Lincoln Park. Um, What were your memories of that day in 68? Uh, Because the, the riots started to flow downhill pretty much as soon as you got done playing, right?
3: Yeah, it wasn't like other outdoor live music events that we all have have been to, where people are happy and smiling, and there's a good vibe. There was very heavy vibes. The Chicago police were driving their uh, Harley-Davidson tricycles through the crowd, knocking kids over. There were undercover police uh, starting fistfights with kids, uh, roughing people up. So the atmosphere was very tense, and Uh, you know a number of uh, the young people came prepared to fight and so once the band once we finished our set and the crowd didn't have anything to focus on they focused their attention on the Chicago police and they were they welcomed them with the swinging batons and uh, Mm -hmm. head head busting and arrests and and it was the first time that Uh, Mom and Pop America saw it happening on the the nightly news, you know, they had never seen uh, policemen beat kids before like that, beat reporters like that, and uh, it it, uh, shocked the nation.
1: It seemed Wayne that after the MC5, such intensity uh, blazed so bright for a short period of time. You go into the recording of the second album, and it's a real super intense studio experience. And you seem to have mixed feelings about that album. Still, you know, you were you something that you guys were were striving for was just sort of out of reach.
3: Well, we had no experience working in a recording studio. It takes time to learn how to be comfortable with the recording process. We had only made a couple singles before Kick Out The Jams and Kick Out The Jams was recorded live. So on uh, Back In The USA, the MC5 second album, that was really our our education in how to record. And we were going through a lot of changes in the band trying trying to ratchet up our approach, you know, to be better musicians, to be a better band. It's not that I have mixed feelings, but um, I, I know each album intimately. I know what their strengths and what their weaknesses were, and in that record's case, I think we we did overreact to the criticism that we were so undisciplined and so irresponsible, mm. <laughs> musically irresponsible, idiosyncratic that that we that we really put a lot of emphasis on that the tempos were solid and that the guitars were in tune and that the s- singing melodies were on pitch and, and that the lyrics were, were very, in fact, the lyrics are more overtly political on the second album than they were yeah. on the first album. Mm. But, you know, each of these albums, is, they're like my kids, you know, they got mm. a, sp- a special place in my heart and uh, they great gr- records of uh, what we were trying to accomplish.
1: And yet those who who were there who saw the five in their heyday or who've seen you since in your quite excellent solo career, you know, will always say the records are great, but it's live. It's <laughs> the live. What happens live? I mean, that's where I think someday when I grow up. I'm going to come to terms with jazz when I'm more mature. But I as I understand, as I understand what you guys took from jazz and and what you as a as a as a musician and a person have taken from jazz is that spontaneity, the unique uh, thing that can happen only in the moment.
3: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, there's a there's a time if musicians are tuned in to each other and have a fundamental agreement about what they're trying to do where everything works beautifully that you have human beings doing a most human activity of performing and creating music spontaneously and it actually never gets any better than that there's you know and i I've, I've had my share of of great nights of music where you're you're up on the stand and and everybody is just playing at the at the peak of their ability and the crowd is right there with you and and the lights are right and everyone looks good and we sound good, and that's as good as it gets. The, those moments uh, I try to grab a, a kiss from joy as it passes by.
0: these records that weren't particularly well understood in their time each one of those records has sort of its own legacy and now you know the history says okay mc5 could be credited as a progenitor for metal for punk for sort of this melding of avant-rock and jazz you know, you guys are real innovators. It's nice if you had heard that the first time when you were when you were doing it right when it's kind of weird how history sort of caught up with the band. Uh, but at the time I think you ended up feeling like this group was a failure in some ways, right? At the at the end of the run there in in 71, 72. Well, yeah,
3: by 72 and you know, the record the music business, the record business had turned their backs on us and our colleagues and comrades on the left had turned their backs on us and you know we expected pushback from parents and teachers and police and prosecutors so it was like every if every road we turned to we got resistance and the pressure was extraordinary especially considering i was 24 years old and Mm -hmm. you know and we know now didn't even have a grown-up brain yet
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i still don't have a grown-up brain When we come back, we talk with MC5 guitarist and solo artist Wayne Kramer about battling drugs and alcohol and his experience in prison. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island's been brewing beers in the spirit of Chicago.
1: You can find IPAs, lemonade, shandy, and limited releases in store or at one of Goose’s venues in Chicago. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago’s Beer.
2: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com/metaverseimpact.
1: And we are back. And today we're talking with musician and author of the new memoir, The Hard Stuff, Wayne Kramer. Before the break, we reflected on how, despite never becoming a household name, the MC5's radical lyrics and its expressive onstage charisma inspired musicians in generations to come. It's ongoing. But... When the group called to quits in 1972, Wayne's problems with drugs and alcohol had become uh, pretty intense. In 1975, he's caught selling cocaine to a federal agent, spends two years in prison for the crime. He's many years sober now. It took a long time and a lot of effort. I wanted to know to what extent he blames the crazy rock and roll scene and the atmosphere uh, of that time for any of the challenges he went through personally with drugs and alcohol.
3: To zero extent. I, I, don't, I don't blame the arts uh, for my lapses in rational thought uh, or, or principles. That's defects of character that I developed on my own power. So, you know, I created most of the trouble in my own life. Uh, not all of it. I, I put a fair amount of it uh, right at the doorstep of the war on drugs, uh, which caused me immense anguish over my life and still pains me to see that uh, we have 2.3 million of our fellow citizens uh, in prison and in jail in this country.
0: So, obviously, the policy got stood on its head, but you went to prison anyway, 1975. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you were caught selling joking. cocaine. You went for over two years at the Lexington Federal Prison in Lexington, Kentucky. You know, some people talk about how miserable they were in prison, and it's... The sense I got of reading your telling of it in The Hard Stuff is that there were some good stuff that came out of there for you, personally. You, I don't know if rehabilitation is the right word, or... But there was some learning going on. You made good use out of those years that you were in prison. Am I reading that correctly?
3: Well, humans are enormously resilient and able to find value and meaning and enjoyment in the most terrible of circumstances. And people in prison do right now as we speak. They have the same fears and ambitions as we do out here. In fact, we're all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, they made a serious mistake, no doubt, but um, they're still just regular people. And yeah, I, I was able to, to use the time to improve my job skills took advantage of every program that they made available to me. I tried to understand what was wrong with me and mm-hmm. what could I do to make sure I never came back to these penitentiaries again.
2: Mhm.
0: I mean obviously it worked. You never you didn't end up in prison again. Um, well, it worked, but you still and had some tough work. years, right? Yeah,
3: I mean, I don't believe prison helps anybody mm-hmm. ever. I think it may have saved my life because I was doing my worst drinking and drugging in those days, and the people I was hanging out with were very dangerous people. So it it saved me in that sense. But these are dangerous places where you're never safe, uh, you're embarrassed, you're emasculated, you are powerless, and you're in a world of... Uh, violence, uh, racism, bitterness, and defeat, Mm -hmm. and um, nobody comes out of those situations better.
1: Tell us about Jail Guitar Doors, Wayne. Um, sure. You know this organization. You and Billy Bragg uh, had this idea. Can we bring music to these people behind bars?
3: What we do is pretty simple. We find people that work in corrections that are willing to use music as a tool for rehabilitation. Today, our instruments are in over 120 American jails and prisons. What we do, in uh, besides just supplying instruments. Is we operate songwriting workshop programs, which are self-expression programs, um, where we can help one learn how to express complex and uncomfortable feelings in a positive way. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has a story. And everyone's story needs to be told. And it's the beginning of the hard work of positive change. You know, most people in prison, they don't like being there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want to be in prison. And uh, if you give them the tools and the incentive, they will make the changes they need to make sure they don't come back to these terrible places again.
2: Starship. Starship.
0: You know, it's interesting because the politics and the art and the music, you know, there, there, there was a huge melting pot of that in, in Detroit. And, you know, you think about back on that era, it's, it's such a collection of characters. I mean, between the <laughs> MC5 and what was happening in Motown, which is extraordinary. But then you've got, you know, the, the wonderful story Iggy Pop telling me uh, any, any chance he got how good the MC5 were to him and his band that couldn't get a leg up, but here was these guys who had made it, or were perceived to be making it, giving a hand up to a a baby band that was trying to find its way you know iggy's become obviously iggy i mean he's an iconic character but you guys saw something in that band that you liked obviously
3: oh yeah i mean you couldn't deny it he had a complete vision and he he was very clear about i mean there were no performers that danced with the abandon and the rhythm that uh, iggy pop danced with or still dances with i mean he's one of the great front men of all time um Mm -hmm. Uh, so, yeah, of course, If uh, when Danny Fields said, is there any other bands around here like the MC5? I said, no, there's no more bands like the MC5, but you need to see the psychedelic stooges. I am a world's And we all, you know, we were all best friends and we all listened to the same Coltrane and Sun Ra and we all smoked the same hash and we all ate the same <laughs> bologna sandwiches and brown rice. And
0: <laughs> you, you think about the characters, you know, coming through that scene, Iggy, and I guess, I don't know if you knew Alice Cooper at the time, but mm-hmm, uh, he, mm-hmm. he came just a little bit later, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Seeger, Bob Seeger, Mitch sure. Ryder, all sure, these characters. Sure, sure. I mean, were, was it a close-knit community in terms of the people who were making this kind of music, which wasn't precisely mainstream certainly at that time
3: yeah yeah it was it, we all knew each other i mean we'd all been it, together we'd all known each other going back to the record hop days where we would all uh, show up at a at a church hall where uh, one of the local DJs would uh, be spinning records and it'd be packed with teenagers dancing and and uh, your band could get up and play a 15 or 20 minute set in between mm-hmm. all the uh, uh, motown artists that were coming by to lip-sync their their latest release. It was a very exciting time. I mean, Detroit was thriving. It was a bustling industrial city with, you know, good-paying jobs, and everything seemed possible in those
2: days.
1: One of the um, oddest things I found in the book, you have a good buddy whose name is Ted. (laughs) And I know you and Ted Nugent came up in the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, But my God, you know, he wants to go out and shoot buffaloes and shoot anybody who wouldn't let him shoot a buffalo. And and just just I mean, he's about he's about 180 degrees opposite everything you stand
3: for, Wayne. Yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty weird. Yeah, <laughs> you know he he never um, had any political interest in the '60s, and I, he didn't really take it up until um, I think you know I, I, once his solo career kind of arced and they were he was looking for something new to to uh, to keep him in the discussion, and I think he discovered that through his. Uh, his hunting and outdoorsman <laughs> hobby—that mm-hmm. that was a, an entree into the world of uh, r- radical right-wing extremist uh, viewpoints. You know, I, I we remain friends. I, I could call him up today, and we could have a pleasant conversation. Um, but we have not—we have yet to have a real substantive political conversation <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I, I'm open to it I would yeah. like to I'd like to because I know he does a lot of good in the world you know he works with kids he underwrites programs for young people and I know he's a family guy and yeah and I, and I kind of worry about him you know he invited Tom Morello and I to one of his gigs in in LA and we went over to the House of Blues where he was playing and we're hanging out backstage and it's getting to be time for him to go on, and he turns around and bends over to pick up his guitar, and we see he's strapped. Mm. You know, he's got this this pistol wow. in his back of he's his, packing. small of his back. Uh-huh. He's packing on, the, on yeah. the stage of the House of uh-huh. Blues. Yeah. And, and it just struck me, like, gosh, what must a man's life be like that he has to go through it armed? You know, what world does he live in? How much how much fear is got to be going on there?
1: Let me ask you a broader question about that? Sure. It seemed like even when people had political differences in that most turbulent time of the 60s, we could unite around certain things. The music could bring people together. Do you think, Wayne, that's still the case today? I mean, you play in a lot of different guises. You play in the indie rock, punk rock underground, and you play jazz, and you play with prisoners behind bars, and, mm-hmm. you, you know, um, does it still have that power? Do you believe in
3: yeah, that? Yeah, sure it does. Art, art will always have the power to make a connection between people. To, to bridge the gap between people. If I do something in music, if I tell the truth about how I feel about something, chances are there's somebody else out there that felt the same way, that reminds me that I'm not the only nutcase mm. <laughs> out here, you know, yeah. that somebody else is, feels weird. Because ultimately art confirms our humanity And tells us we're not alone.
1: Mm -hmm. And we're all in this together.
3: We are all in this together, absolutely.
1: I'm reading between the lines, Wayne. When the MC5 fell apart and then you go down your path of of drug abuse and crime and wind up in prison, it seems like there was a distance there between you and and Fred Sonic Smith and you and Rob Tyner. You you, you say, like, I mean, you deal with each of their passings in a couple of sentences and say, you know, we hadn't been close when he passed, but it hit me hard.
3: Well, because we never were able to reconnect after the breakup of the band nothing Mm. was ever resolved Uh, we never got to know each other as grown-ups and it it's just left as an open wound a scar uh and uh, there's there you know there is no closure or resolution to to uh when people leave before their time even if even if it is uh natural i mean what's what is a unnatural death i mean yeah right, <laughs> you, know, right. you die you die that's about as natural as it gets mm-hmm. um but you know we never got a ch- we never got a chance to to be friends and you know, kind of review what we went through together uh, i I think we probably none of us really survived having been in the m c five it was too much for a bunch of young guys to we walk through the fire and and all the the ultra highs and devastating lows and the pressure and the the friendships and the camaraderie and the undermining of all that and see it one day all go away um, yeah. it was it was rough so yeah i mean uh, it was hard <laughs>
1: Tell us about uh, you have this second career now as well, uh, scoring films and doing film. You've been in L.A. for a long time now, based out on the West Coast. Um, What is what is that world like? How did you get into it?
3: Well, I knew I knew the day was coming when I would not be quite so enthusiastic about getting in the van. Again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a great
1: paragraph towards the end of the book mm-hmm. about everybody romanticizes it, but it's leaving hell sleeping on the floor night after night after yeah, night. Yeah.
3: It's it's hard work and, and uh you know, I, I thought I could do some music for film. It always seemed like a possibility. I, I would listen to the underscore on television and, and, uh, and, and movies and thought, hmm, I could do some of that. I could do something like that. I know a little bit about this. But when I finally moved to L.A. and started to pursue it seriously, I got a few jobs and then I discovered I need to go back to school. So I started Mm -hmm. uh, taking uh, scoring classes at UCLA and uh, the union had some good orchestration classes running at the time because I had to learn the same thing that all composers have to learn is the the language of the orchestra. Having been in a rock band all my life didn't really prepare me for where did the violins go and where did the French (laughs) horns go and, you know, what are the articulations that you might use on brass to give you the effect that you want for this scene. Uh, and, I, and I still take classes when I can. was I, I, a
1: recurring theme throughout mm. the hard stuff and throughout your life. You have been trying to school yourself your entire life.
3: Yeah, I have. I still am. I'm still a student. I, in fact, I look forward to being a student all of my days.
2: You
0: know, Wayne, uh, for me, it's a shame that a lot of people don't really know about the MC5 still, 50 years later. uh, Not only did you guys make uh, some incredible music, but you put a lot on the line because of some of the political views that were associated with the band. Bands like The Clash and Rage Against the Machine, uh, you had an incredible influence, and your influence is probably greater than the actual knowledge about your music specifically. Do you think that by writing this book, you've been able to impart uh, your side of the story and make a case for the importance of this great band that you were in?
3: Well, uh, that's you know another reason that I wanted to write a memoir is to get so the story would get told from my perspective, from the mm-hmm. from the eye of the storm. You mm-hmm. know, the the story the the bones have been picked pretty good on the MC5 story, but I wanted it on record from my perspective that mm-hmm. that this is what happened, and uh, and I and I I, I wanted uh, my son to know what his father had gone through as a young man. So
0: sure. It's a it's a remarkable Tr- book and
3: tricky stuff with memoir. You know, if you don't, if if you wait too long, you can die and then you lose your
0: chance. And uh, the other thing is kind of remembering some of the details. I would imagine. You You're know, right.
3: Just, and and I I you know of course after I finished, I remembered a few. Oh, I didn't talk about this. Oh, I forgot that part then. <laughs>
1: But it's an unsparing book. It's, it's a, it's a noble book in the sense that the hard stuff uh, tells the truth. You don't always look good, Wayne. One of the reviews I read said, I think this guy's an a-hole. I would not want to meet him. I, mean, I don't know. You know, Greg and I have interviewed a bunch of times, including in person. I don't think that's true. But but uh, I, I don't think a memoir is a valid thing unless people are being unflinchingly honest. And that's its strength.
3: Yeah. Any any memoir that isn't uh, embarrassing and, and uh, you know, couldn't be, couldn't possibly be any good. Yeah. I mean, human be, human life is messy and it's not perfect and it's not always pretty and so to tell to tell stories from a life i think you you have to go there
1: the hard stuff is is out now dope crime the mc5 my life possibilities and uh, wayne it's always a pleasure to visit with you
3: thanks guys i always enjoy speaking with you you bring out a fresh perspective to to uh, the subject matter and that makes it fun for me
1: That wraps up our conversation with the late Wayne Kramer of the MC5, dead at the age of 75. So much music followed, Greg. So many bands influenced from The Clash to uh, Rage Against the Machine. I'll toss this out to listeners. Will we ever see another group like The Five? Leave us a message uh, on our website, soundopinions.org. What do we have on the show next week?
0: Next week, Jim, we've got your interview with uh, Louise Post, late of Veruca Salt, still going strong with a newish solo record. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. The views, thoughts,
1: and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Max Hatlam, and our social media consultant is Katie Todd.